Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want it, young man, and you got it. The hottest man in the land. DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. And now, on with the show. And that'll be the day, especially the word around the Shadron area now. I, I don't know. But <laughs> no matter where you go on a telephone conversation, no matter what it is, that'll be the day. And uh, that's kind of a good plug, isn't it, buddy? <laughs> it sure is, <laughs> Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This is episode three of the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. I'm Christian Swain, and I'm going to rave on at you from behind the mic in San Francisco. Well been some ride so far, hasn't it? We've covered a lot of diverse topics. We hope it's been interesting for you. I've been enjoying it and I've learned a few things myself. We brainstormed quite a bit about what to call this project. We settled on rock and roll archaeology because we like the approach archaeologists take. Multifaceted, free associating, using a wide angle lens to take a picture of the past going beyond names and places to try to catch the feel of it, to try to understand what daily life was like at the time and what ideas were streaming through the culture. And archaeology spends a lot of time on artifacts, the tools, the creative endeavors those tools made possible, and what those tools say to us about the times and the people who lived in them. So we looked at some cultural and social forces in 1950s America, forces both dark and hopeful. We looked at technological artifacts like 45 RPM records and jukeboxes, TV sets, and transistor radios. We talked a bit about how they changed the culture all by themselves, and also created the means for this enfant terrible we call rock and roll to quickly burst out into the culture with deep, long-lasting effects. In time, we will stop, double back, and have deeper, more detailed discussions of particular times places, people, and artifacts. Our subject is vast, and I don't think we're ever going to run out of interesting things to examine and discuss. But for now, we want to keep forward momentum and lay down what we hope will be an accurate and useful timeline that provides context and reference points for those deeper discussions to come. 
This is an imperfect overview of an evolving story, so undoubtedly we will miss some things and fail to give important topics their due consideration. That's where you come in, my friends. We want critiques, comments, suggestions, and we don't mind the occasional unhinged rant. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Find this podcast on your favorite iOS or Android podcast app. You can dig up more details on this episode, including the show notes and links to the artists and songs on rockandrollarchaeology.com. We have reached over 1,000 listeners in just two weeks. Thanks to you, the original diggers. Your support has sent the RNRAP to number one on the iTunes New and Noteworthy in Music Podcasts. You can email us your feedback and suggestions at rockandrollarchaeologyproject at gmail.com. Find us on facebook.com backslash the RNRAP. Follow us on Twitter at RNRarchaeology. This episode concludes our kickoff three-part series released since we launched weekly. Going forward with episode four, we will be going to a monthly schedule. We truly appreciate you as a listener and your patience. It is important that we maintain our standards in delivering quality content to you. So let's get to it right now. This is episode three, The Day the Music Died. We open in rural Iowa. It's February 2nd, 1959. Rolling down a frozen two-lane in a crappy old converted school bus, Buddy Holly is cold, tired, and uh, pissed off. The shows were going great. Sellouts, lots of energy from the audience. That night's show at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, had been added at the last minute and sold out instantly. But everything else about the tour sucked. For starters, Buddy didn't even want to be there. He'd fired his manager, Norman Petty, back in November. Bitter disputes over songwriting credits and royalties had everything tied up in legal knots with no resolution in sight. Hit records or not, Buddy Holly, newly married with a kid on the way, was broke. So he hit the road. The Winter Dance Party Tour featuring Buddy Holly and the Crickets, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper with Dion and the Belmonts played their first show in Milwaukee on January 23rd. By February 2nd, they'd done 11 shows in 11 nights, traveling all day through the snowy Midwest on an unheated bus. Nobody had gotten paid yet. A nasty flu bug had nailed almost everyone. The Bopper did the show that night running a temperature of 102 Cricket's drummer, Carl Bunch, had been hospitalized two days earlier with frostbite. The Crickets were the backup band for all the acts, so to get through last night's show, Buddy, Richie, and the Bopper had taken turns sitting in on drums for each other. Enough already. Buddy decided to charter a small plane to take him and two of the other guys to Fargo, North Dakota, right over the state line from Moorhead, Minnesota, site of the February 3rd show. He would rest and regroup for a few hours, do everyone's laundry, and the bus would catch up with them the next day. Hello, baby. 
This is the Big Bopper speaking. <laughs> oh, you sweet thing. All three artists had been running themselves ragged over the past year. J.P. Richardson Jr., or the Big Bopper, was working full-time as a popular DJ in Texas. A couple years earlier, he'd made it into the Guinness Book of World Records by broadcasting continuously for nearly six days. He took shower breaks during the five-minute news segments. He, he was a big, charming fellow with a big, boisterous voice. His second single, Chantilly Lace, sailed up the charts in 1958. It still sounds great, a clever, lascivious rendering of one side of a phone conversation the bopper is having with his girlfriend. Around that time, J.P. also wrote several hit country tunes for other artists. A family man with a second kid on the way, all along he kept his day job as a DJ at KTRM in Beaumont, Texas. The Winter Dance Party Tour was the bopper's first foray out onto the road as a rock and roll performer. J.P. paid his dues for years before breaking out. But Richard Stevens Valenzuela, the 17-year-old kid from Pacoima, California, had a rocket attached to his back. We've talked quite a bit about crossover artists who smash through racial barriers. Richie Valens was another one, the first Latino rock and roll star. Here's Richie's mom, Consuelo Valenzuela, quoted in an L.A. Times article from 1987. I still remember the first time we heard Richie sing on the radio. I told his brother Bob, come on, let's go to Sagas. I pulled over to the side of the road when come on, let's go came on the radio. We just sat there looking at each other, amazed. time the tour made it to Iowa, Richie already had two top ten singles with Come On Let's Go and the love ballad Donna. And the B-side to Donna was La Bamba, an updated rocked out version of a traditional Mexican song Richie remembered from family parties as a boy. It was to become the first Spanish language record to break the top ten in America. And now he was out on the road opening for Buddy Holly. Had he stuffed for a school-aged kid from the San Fernando Valley who had signed his record contract less than eight months earlier. Rock and roll, then and now, is at its best when it takes diverse, seemingly incongruous musical elements, throws them into the blender, and hits the high-speed button. Elvis, a white kid raised on country and bluegrass, picked up the sound of the blues as a teen on Beale Street in Memphis. Chuck Berry, brought up on gospel and the blues, loved the storytelling in country songs and put those stories to a backbeat. At 17 years of age, it's a safe bet that Richie Valens had no thought of such cultural considerations. He was just singing and playing the music he loved growing up. He didn't even speak Spanish. He learned the lyrics for La Bamba phonetically. are kind of neat. They roughly translate to to dance the bamba, one needs a bit of grace. 
a bit of grace for you, for me. Gracia in Spanish translates to grace, as in the graceful choreography of a dance. But in colloquial Spanish, it also means good humor, a sense of fun. It works either way. Writing and composing original music for guitar, bass, and drums, then recording the basic tracks, overdubbing more guitars, maybe some horns or background vocals or strings, double track lead vocals, taking tools like the mixing board and effects like reverb and echo, and going beyond merely using them to recreate sound environments, using the studio musically as another instrument. Working as a band in the studio way into the night, revising, doing alternate takes, Collaborating with the sound engineers to splice together the best parts from different takes to get that perfect three minutes. Mix it down to a master copy. If you're like me, and you've seen too many episodes of classic albums or behind the music on VH1, then you recognize this as the creative process for a rock album. From the Beatles to Led Zeppelin, from U2 to Nirvana, Buddy Holly invented that process. And more, he took composition techniques from classic tunesmiths like George Gershwin and Duke Ellington, things like tempo and key changes, breaks and bridges, and he adapted them to rock songs. And he was the first American rocker to conquer Great Britain. Except for a handful of dates in Canada, Elvis never played live outside the U.S. Buddy's records outsold Elvis in the U.K., and when the Crickets toured the U.K. for 26 shows in March of 1958... It was a national sensation. Here's Paul McCartney interviewed on the Ronnie Wood Show. But yeah, and we love Buddy. And I think the other reason we love Buddy was that he wrote. He yeah. wrote his stuff. Elvis didn't write his stuff. Loved Elvis, but he didn't write his stuff. That's right. So Buddy wrote and played and played the solos. Yeah. So he was a self-contained guy, which is what we were trying to emulate. The Beatles, the Crickets. Yeah. We can safely say that John and Paul were heavily influenced by Buddy Holly. Graham Nash was in a band called the, uh, the Hollies. The Rolling Stones' first American single was Not Fade Away. Buddy Holly left giant musical footprints all over the British Isles. The guys my age at that time, if you were the least bit interested in music, Buddy was the one because he sang and he was very self-contained. That's me channeling Keith Richards, quoted in According to the Rolling Stones, published in 2003. In the first episode, we called rock and roll an infant and then an unruly toddler. When we get to Little Richard and Chuck Berry, we can call it a precocious, hyperactive kid. With Buddy Holly, rock and roll steps out into the world as a confident young adult, something self-contained, somebody fully realized. Hey, hey, whoa, hey, 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 
Keeping on in the Belmonts, tagging along as the opening act on the Winter Dance Party Tour, took doo-wop singing and set it to a beat. Throw in lyrics full of teenage angst about unrequited love and you're going to sell some records. Dion DeMucci, the handsome kid from the Bronx with the sweet pipes, would go on to move a lot more vinyl. At some point early in the evening, Buddy asked Dion if he wanted a seat on the plane he'd just chartered. 36 bucks. At the time, it just seemed like a lot of money to me, Dion recalled years later in an interview on VH1. Single-engine 1947 Beechcraft Bonanza 35, chartered through the Dwyer Flying Service, had four seats, including the pilot. Waylon Jennings had just hired on with the crickets, playing the bass. He gave his seat to the flu-stricken Big Bopper, who was feeling half-dead after sweating through his set, Richie Valens did a great set, and then Buddy and the Crickets took to the stage at the surf ballroom to close out the show. In a side stage room right after the show, Richie and Crickets guitarist Tommy Alsup flipped a coin for the last seat. Richie won the toss. So it was all set. Carol Anderson, the manager of the surf, would drive Buddy, JP, and Richie one town over to the small airstrip in Mason City, Iowa. You to know just how I feel A love for real not fade away Cotton country, the base of the panhandle More churches than trees That frozen winter tarmac in Mason City, Iowa was a long way from the long, hot summers Charles Harden Holly knew growing up in Lubbock, Texas. Charles, well, folks around Lubbock all called him Buddy, pretty much right from the start, was born on September 7, 1936. Buddy's two older brothers, Larry and Travis, taught him guitar, mandolin, and banjo, and the kid took right to it. By 15, Buddy was a lanky, nearsighted musical prodigy, and he and his childhood pal Bob Montgomery were working as a duo composing and performing original country tunes. In early 55, Buddy and Bob opened the show for Elvis Presley in Lubbock. Some Nashville talent scouts took notice, but more important to our story, the rockabilly sound he heard from Elvis and the Boys made a big impression on Buddy. He immediately started incorporating the percussive slap bass, jittery backbeat, and strong rhythm guitar into his own compositions. Buddy had gone rock and roll. The 1978 film, The Buddy Holly Story, has a scene where Buddy, played by Gary Busey, gets into a fistfight with a producer in Nashville. Call it dramatic license. The fight never happened, but Buddy definitely bristled at what he felt was a rigid, stodgy approach to his songs. Those three Nashville sessions, done for Decca Records in the spring and summer of 1956, yielded two singles that failed to catch on. The rest of the recordings, including an early, slower version of That'll Be the Day, were shelved. In January of 1957, Decca informed Buddy they no longer required his services. He may not have thrown any punches over it, but the other musicians who worked with Buddy agree that he was fierce about making records his way, with full creative control. He knew what he was after. He headed back to Lubbock. Northwest of Lubbock, about a hundred dusty miles away in Clovis, New Mexico, Norman Petty had a recording studio. 
Petty charged by the song instead of by the hour, Buddy went back to work, and a few months later, he took on Petty as his manager. They spent the fall and winter of 56-57 working out tighter, tougher versions of Buddy's most promising songs. On the strength of those recordings, Norman Petty got Buddy not one, but two recording contracts. One with Brunswick Records as the Crickets, and a solo deal with Coral Records. Ironically, both small record companies were subsidiaries of DECA, company that had dumped Buddy just a few months earlier. We got close because it was almost as if he had a premonition that he wasn't going to be around. He was trying to teach me about music as we went along. I learned that when you do a song, you got to remember you're going to be doing that song for the rest of your life. You better make sure you like it. Waylon Jennings said that about his friend Buddy Holly in a 1996 interview. Buddy had been a musical mentor to Waylon growing up in Lubbock. Nobody had been more thrilled at Buddy's success. In late 1958, Buddy offered Waylon Jennings a job, playing bass on tour for the Crickets. Right after the first of the year, the two Texans rode a train together from Lubbock to Chicago. As they packed up after the show in Clear Lake in the early hours of February 3rd, but he learned that Whalen had given up his seat to J.P. Richardson. Well, I hope your old bus freezes up, he told Whalen. Yeah, well, I hope your old plane crashes, Whalen shot back, giving his friend the business. Buddy, J.P., and Richie piled into Carol Anderson's sedan for the ride to the airstrip. But he had found his sound and released That'll Be The Day as a cricket single on Brunswick Records. The isolation and the artistic freedom of recording with Norman Petty in New Mexico had done the trick. It was a slow climb, but by the fall, That'll Be The Day, with its John Wayne tagline for a chorus, topped the U.S. charts. In July, Peggy Sue was released on Coral Records as a Buddy Holly song and started charting right away with its paradiddle drum rhythm and crescendos and decrescendos, it is a startling innovative record then and now. I love you, Peggy Sue, with a love so rare and true. Oh, Peggy, my Peggy Sue. <laughs> well, I love you, gal. I want you, Peggy Sue. singles also jumped up the UK sales charts. That'll be the day hit number one in Britain that November and stuck for three weeks, kicking off two solid years of Buddy Holly mania in England. Like Ray and Elvis, Chuck and Little Richard, Buddy and the Crickets busted racial barriers. In August, they headlined a week-long stand at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, the first all-white act to ever try that. The reception started out interested and polite, but a bit reserved. 
By week's end, the crickets were bringing down the house. The crickets then toured late summer of 57 as the only white act on a Rhythm and Blues National Road Show. On December 1st, Buddy Holly and the crickets played the Ed Sullivan Show. Buddy Holly had arrived. Rockabilly Jim is Flying Saucer Rock and Roll by Billy Lee Riley, a sun release from early 1957. Our old friend Sam Phillips produced it. It made a modest run up the charts that year. Sitting in on piano, Jerry Lee Lewis, in one of his first professional recording sessions. Jerry Lee's story has many ups and downs across decades. The guy just keeps showing up. Jerry Lee Lewis busted out in 1957, so we can't move on from that year without discussing the killer. If I had to sum up Jerry Lee Lewis in a sentence, it would go something like this. Huge talent, highly influential, and a colossal asshole. An egomaniacal, mean drunk, wife beater, with seven marriages and at least two instances of bigamy grown kids who will have nothing to do with him. Two of his wives died under mysterious circumstances. One drowned, the the other overdosed. Playing around with a gun, he damn near killed his bass player one night. On-stage meltdowns, paternity suits, bankruptcy, constant and justified harassment from the IRS, wrecked cars, sex scandals, painkiller addiction, just all kinds of non-stop, drunken, gun-waving crazy shit. And it must be said... Breathtaking talent. A savant, a real original who strutted through multiple musical genres with ease and arrogant poise. The son of Elmo and Mamie Lewis was born on the farm in Faraday, Louisiana on September 29, 1935. It was a difficult breech delivery. A doctor was summoned, but he showed up drunk and soon passed out, so Elmo Lewis brought his boy into the world. Jerry Lee, that's how he refers to himself in the third person, as in... Jerry Lee's about to go home now. Started playing the piano at the age of five. Elmo mortgaged the farm when the boy was ten and bought him a used spinet piano. Much like little Richard, Jerry Lee was torn between the sacred and the profane. Mamie wanted her boy to use his musical talents to serve the Lord, so she enrolled Jerry Lee in a Bible college. That didn't last long, and Jerry Lee and Elmo took a drive to Memphis to meet Sam Phillips at Sun Records. Jerry Lee cut some demos at Sun in the fall of 56 that showed promise. His first original tune, Crazy Arms, was released to modest chart success late that year. He bugged Phillips for some session work and Sam would give him 15 bucks a pop for sitting in on piano. He put a band together and started gigging. By the spring of 57, Jerry Lee and his band had worked out a killer arrangement of whole lot of shaking going on. 
a rhythm and blues hit by Big Maybell from a couple of years earlier. Interesting little aside, an up-and-coming producer named Quincy Jones produced that cut for Maybell. May of 57 saw the Sun Records release of Whole Lot of Shaking Going On. Some radio stations found it too raunchy, but Alan Freed and other DJs loved it and pushed it hard. The song quickly became a regional hit. But the real rave-up came on Jerry Lee's first national TV appearance on The Steve Allen Show, July 27, 1957. Even by today's standards, pretty outrageous. By the standards of 1957, well, goodness gracious, great balls of fire. When he appears on Steve Allen singing this song, which is his first national appearance, he's seated at the piano, banging it out. Being seated at the piano is too constraining, so he stands at the piano, and that's too constraining. So he kicks the piano bench out of the scene, and then, amazingly, this is on the Steve Allen Show, Steve Allen grabs the piano bench and throws it back. I, I mean, it's like complete ballroom brawl on national TV. Jerry Lee's song goes from being a regional hit to... You know, the top five of the pop charts after that Steve Allen performance. That's the music writer Robert Gordon, author of It Came From Memphis, quoted in an episode of NPR's All Things Considered. What Gordon leaves out is the strut and the sneer, the menacing bad boy sexuality of it. This was something new. Chuck was writing in sly, double entendres. Elvis was pleading, don't be cruel and let me be your teddy bear. Jerry Lee just put it out there. He wanted your feet up in the air in the back seat of his Lincoln Continental right after the show. Parked right out back, darling. You check my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much love drives a man insane. You broke my wheel, but what a thrill. It was rigged with balls of fire I left in love, but I thought it was funny But you came along and you moved me, honey I changed my mind, love is fine Jerry Lee and the boys hit the road, doing several of Alan Freed's package tours with the likes of Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, and the Everly Brothers. Great Balls of Fire came out in December, and this time, a bunch of radio stations wanted nothing to do with it. Which, of course, made the record jump off the shelves, especially after a couple of crazy appearances on American Bandstand, played live, not lip-synced. Sam got a couple of Jerry Lee's tunes into movies, the 1957 release Jamboree and High School Confidential, which featured Jerry playing piano in a flatbed truck over the opening credits. And then, in the wake of Buddy Holly's sensational UK tour, Jerry Lee Lewis headed over to London to start his own tour in early summer of 1958, and the shit hit the fan. In December of 1957, Jerry Lee had married his third wife, Myra Brown, his first cousin once removed. Jerry Lee was 22. Myra was 13. To make it even creepier, Jerry Lee's second marriage to Jane Mitchum was of dubious validity. It had taken place 23 days before his first divorce from Dorothy Barton was final. They first met, according to Myra, when she was 12, doing her math homework. A bigamist and a cradle snatcher, and just to get knee-deep in the sleaze, Myra was the babysitter for Jerry Lee Lewis Jr. and Ronnie Guy Lewis. 
the two kids from his four-year sort of marriage to Jane Mitchum. A London reporter named Ray Barry had uncovered most of this, and when Jerry Lee arrived at Heathrow, Barry hit him with some questions. Jerry Lee tried to explain his marital history to that point. I was 14 when I first got married. My wife was too old for me. She was 17. Uh, Then I met Jane Mitchum. One day she told me she was going to have my child. Her, Her brothers was hunting me with whips. I was real worried, so I married her, but never properly. She divorced me. Though she didn't need to, she was never my wife. Needless to say, that explanation didn't help things. After two shows, the UK tour was cancelled, and the scandal followed Jerry Lee back home to the States. Alan Freed and Sam Phillips stuck by him, but everyone else treated him like he was radioactive. Jerry Lee went straight from hanging out with Elvis and booking headliner gigs at $10,000 a show to playing bars with pickup bands for 250 bucks. Jerry Lee will come up again. But for now, I'll just point you to the 1964 release Live at the Star Club in Hamburg. Live albums are kind of lackluster in my opinion. There's a few of them, like the Who's Live at Leeds or the Rolling Stones' Get Your Yaya's Out that stand out as great documents that capture the energy of a great rock show. Live at the Star Club is one of those blaster live albums, a great snapshot of a guy who could be a world-class knucklehead, but who could also take the stage and just burn that mother down. The killer, Jerry Lee Lewis. Supergroup Blind Faith's cover of Buddy's Well All Right. Ginger Baker, Rick Gretsch, Stevie Winwood, and a cat named Eric Clapton's playing guitar on that one. We've spent a lot of time on Buddy Holly, and it's fair to ask, why? Elvis sold a lot more records. So did Chuck Berry and Little Richard. Simply put, Buddy Holly's influence on other rock and roll musicians. The Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock Music ranks him 13th on its list of the 100 greatest rock musicians, a guy whose career lasted 18 months, who released two albums. Why? I think it's because Buddy Holly was his own creation. When he wrote, produced, and played his own hits and then performed them live with his own band, young rockers like Keith Richards and John Lennon and Paul Simon thought, well, maybe I can do that too. Like this young man who went to see the Winter Dance Party Tour on January 31st, 1959. And I just wanted to say that one time when I was about 16 or 17 years old, I went to see Buddy Holly play at uh, in a Duluth National Guard Armory, and I was, I was three feet away from him, and he looked at me, and uh, I just had some kind of feeling that he was, uh, I don't know how or why, but... I know he was with us all the time. We were making this record in some kind of way. 
Bob Dylan said that when he picked up a Grammy for his album Time Out of Mind in 1998. As rock fans, we don't get to see this enough, selling big without selling out. Buddy sold big because he refused to sell out. I have no doubt that if he'd just gotten with the program during those sessions in Nashville, Decca Records would have launched him on a solid career. Eventually, he would have been granted creative freedom and open-ended studio time and his pick of backing musicians. Sounds nice, but that wasn't enough for Buddy Holly. He was going to do it his way. If that meant borrowing money from his brothers and working out his songs in Clovis, New Mexico, rather than on the record company's dime in New York or Nashville, well, so be it. He succeeded on his own terms. And I think that as much as the songs and the sound was what made observant young musicians like Mick and Keith and John and Paul such ardent fans. Just you know why Why you and I Will by and by No true love ways Sometimes we'll sigh Buddy and the Crickets toured relentlessly throughout the fall and winter of 57-58. They played 23 shows in 25 days in January 58 before boarding a plane to Hawaii to headline two shows at the Honolulu Civic on the 27th. The next day, across the Pacific to a whirlwind tour of Australia, 12 shows in 7 days, including a triple header on February 4th, 1958 in Sydney. Back in the States, Buddy spent a week in Petty's studio in Clovis laying down tracks. Three sessions produced It's So Easy and Well All Right. On the road again for 12 shows in 6 days in Florida. Nobody these days, not even the toughest of road dog rock and rollers, comes close to matching the pace the crickets kept. On the 27th of February, they boarded a plane to Heathrow for 26 shows in 25 days up and down the British Isles. As we've discussed, the UK tour was a smash with lasting impact down through the years. But there was no time to pause and consider, no break in the action. Back in New York by the end of March, the crickets began crisscrossing the U.S. and Canada, headlining small and medium-sized venues or playing arenas in one of Freed's big package tours. Finally, in early June, they took a break for a couple of days and kicked back by the pool in Los Angeles. On June 12, 1958, the other guys headed back to Texas, but Buddy hopped a plane to New York. On Thursday, June 19th, Buddy spent most of the day cutting tracks at Pythian Temple Studios. At some point during the day, Buddy visits a Manhattan jewelry store and drops 550 bucks in 2015 dollars, that's well over four grand, on a diamond ring for Maria Elena Santiago, a pretty receptionist for Pierre Southern Music, Buddy's publishing company in New York. After securing permission from Maria's aunt, Buddy takes her out the next night. Five hours into their first date, Buddy proposes to Maria. The following morning, Maria says yes. I've never had a boyfriend in my life. I'd never been on a date before. But when I saw Buddy, it was like magic. He came into my life when I needed him, and I came into his. Maria said that to a reporter for the Lubbock Avalanche Journal in 2008. 
After getting married on August 15th at the Holly Home in Lubbock, the couple honeymooned for a week in Acapulco. Buddy spent most of September shuttling back and forth between Lubbock and Clovis, cutting more tracks with Norman Petty. Towards the end of the month, Buddy and Maria headed back to New York City and found an apartment in Greenwich Village. The other crickets, weary of the road, stayed behind in Texas. It was an amicable party, but Buddy was now a man without a ban. More changes came quick. According to Philip Norman's well-sourced 1996 biography, Buddy Holly was becoming disillusioned with Norman Petty that summer. The last straw was when Maria's Aunt Provy, who headed the Latin American Music Division at Pierce Southern Publishing, informed Buddy that Petty was paying Cricket's royalties into his own company's account. At the suggestion of Phil and Don Everly, Buddy fired Norman Petty that fall and retained high-powered Manhattan attorney Harold Ornstein, who promptly filed suit. A tough but necessary move, but the lawsuit put all payments on hold and Buddy and Maria were in a tough spot financially as they started out their life together. Buddy was enjoying the break from the grind. He recorded at a relatively leisurely pace at Pythian Temple and spent time with Maria. Some afternoons he would sit on a bench and play guitar in Washington Square Park. At night, he'd explore the vast, wonderful music scene in New York, looking for fresh ideas and inspiration. But the financial pressures were mounting. Bankruptcy was a real possibility. Right around the first of the year, Maria told Buddy she was pregnant, and that was that. Buddy went back to work. He put together a new version of the Crickets and booked them on the Winter Dance Party Tour, his first time headlining a package tour. Now, about a year and a half earlier, on September 15, 1957, Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers had met backstage at the Forum in Montreal. It was on the Canadian swing of a package tour, Alan Freed's Biggest Show of Stars, for 1957. The Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly were mutual admirers, big fans of each other's music. They became fast friends. Close harmony is a music theory term. For our purposes, it's where one vocalist sings a close interval, less than an octave, and usually only a third, above the other. If you sing a do-re-mi scale, then the third or mi step on the scale is where the upper part lies. With two-part close harmony, think Everly Brothers or Simon and Garfunkel, the two lines can each independently carry the melody. They work well alone or together really well together if you sing like Phil and Don. It's relatively simple singing. Don Everly would tell folks the Everly Brothers were basically an American skiffle band with a bit more polish than usual. The simplicity of it was also the beauty of it. Don's modest comments notwithstanding, the Everly Brothers were a couple of supremely talented musical prodigies. Ike and Margaret Everly were professional musicians, and they passed that on to their two boys. As grade schoolers, they were big hits on their dad's radio show in Shenandoah, Iowa. Ike Everly was a fine fingerstyle blues guitarist, a longtime admirer of Chet Atkins. Ike wrote Chet lots of fan letters. He managed to get a meeting with Atkins in Knoxville, Tennessee in early 1954. 
Ike seized the opportunity to talk up his two talented sons. Even before younger brother Phil's graduation from high school, the Everly brothers had a record deal. Phil ended up getting his diploma through correspondence courses he took while out on the road. In March of 1957, Bye Bye Love was released and went to number two, behind Elvis Presley's Teddy Bear. In August of 57, Wake Up Little Susie shot to the top ten of the country, R&B, and pop charts. Both Everly hits were written by the husband and wife team of Boudelow and Felice Bryant. Like the Crickets, the brothers spent long months out on the road with brief stops to record new tracks. That tour, where the boys met Buddy Holly in Montreal, was for 78 shows in 11 weeks. We rode in buses, not like today's tour buses with uh, microwaves and video cassette players, just regular buses. Paul Anka and Frankie Lyman used to sleep up in the luggage racks, you know? And Laverne Baker stretched out across the aisle with suitcases between the seats. That's Phil Everly from a Rolling Stone interview of the Everly Brothers by Kurt Loder in 1986, which serves as our primary source for this discussion. The hardships were real, but so was the camaraderie and the long bus rides gave the two brothers ample time to talk with and get to know their new friend, Buddy Holly. Here's Don Everly. We also played for Alan Freed at the Paramount Theater in New York, and boy, it was hysterical. We got to be very close friends with Buddy Holly and the Crickets because we all had the same kind of country blues background. We took him and the Crickets down to our clothes store in New York, too, We had just learned to dress a little sharper ourselves, and they noticed. So we took them to all the places. If you look at pictures from back then, you'll see all of us in the same jackets, Ivy League-like. Sharply dressed, talented young men, friends, laughing and smiling. Hold that picture in your mind. tragic end for Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, the big bopper and their young pilot Roger Peterson is academic. Government documents make for dry reading. The Civil Aeronautics Board report filed on September 15, 1959 about the February 3rd incident outside Mason City, Iowa is no exception. The Time Magazine article is rather somber and straightforward as well. The three musicians boarded the red and white single-engine Beechcraft Bonanza around 12.30 on February 3rd. Fans flocked to the tarmac, waving and crying and asking for autographs. The musicians waved back and then climbed onto the plane. Snow blew across the runway, but the sky was clear. The Time article is not entirely accurate about the weather. According to the CAB report... Weather was reported to the pilot as ceiling measured 6,000 feet overcast, visibility 15 miles plus, temperature 15 degrees, dew point 8 degrees, wind south 25 to 32 knots, altimeter setting 29.96 inches. That was at 11.30 p.m. By 12.55 a.m., the time of takeoff, 
The altimeter read 29.85, and the ceiling had dropped to 3,000 feet. A strong front was moving in. It happened fast. That's one indisputable fact. From the CAB report again. The board concludes that pilot Peterson, when a short distance from the airport, was confronted with this situation. Because of fluctuation of the rate instruments caused by gusty winds, he would have been forced to concentrate and rely greatly on the attitude gyro, an instrument with which he was not completely familiar. The pitch display of this instrument is the reverse of the instrument he was accustomed to. Therefore, he could have become confused and thought that he was making a climbing turn, when in reality, he was making a descending turn. More simply put, five miles out from the airport, instead of accelerating and climbing to a cruising altitude above the low-hanging clouds, Roger Peterson thought up was down and ran the plane into the ground at about 170 miles an hour. Nobody saw the crash. There was no distress call, no response to hails, just silence. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Three young singers who soared to the heights of show business on the current rock and roll craze were killed today in the crash of a light plane in an Iowa snow flurry. Iowa, three of the nation's top rock and roll singing stars, Richie Valens, J.B. the Big Bopper Richardson, and Buddy Holly died today with their pilot in the crash of a chartered plane. Following an the owner of the charter service, Hubert Dwyer, started an aerial search at daybreak and spotted the wreckage at about 9 a.m. The coroner's report indicates massive, immediately fatal injuries to all four men. There's a link in the show notes to Buddy's autopsy, but... If that sort of thing is disturbing to you, you might want to skip that link. Maria Elena Santiago Holly heard the news on a television report. She went into deep psychological shock and miscarried the next day. She did not attend the funeral and has never visited the gravesite. Authorities now withhold names of air crash victims from the media until family can be notified. Waylon Jennings spent 20 years haunted by the flip, sarcastic remark he made to his friend after the show that night. He eventually made his peace with it, but only after years of drinking to numb the pain. Buddy's funeral was held on February 7th in Lubbock. Phil Everly attended and sat with the Holly family. Don Everly took to his bed, deep in grief, and did not attend. I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I knew if I've always been a fan, but as I put this show together, I developed a real affinity for Buddy. To be expected, I suppose. Listening to all those great songs, reading about his life, watching the McCartney documentary, it turned the guy into a friend. All these decades later, all these miles away as we bring the story to its abrupt and tragic conclusion, like Don McLean, I feel a sharp pain of losing a friend. I'm Christian Swain, and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you in Episode 4. The music died.
The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Sound by John Michael Berry. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.